0: Welcome to episode 63 of the Camerosity podcast, the world's number one open source film photography podcast. My name is Mike Ekman and we are back for our first episode of 2024. In this episode, we will finally give some love to a brand of camera that for reasons unknown, we haven't really dedicated much time to, Olympus. As Japan's second photographic company named after a mountain, we are sure to talk about a variety of Olympus pens OMSLRs, and whatever else we think of. Before we get started, let's welcome back the rest of the gang. From Gainesville, Florida, home of lethargic iguanas, is Mr. Anthony Roo. Hey, Anthony, is your front lawn still on fire?
1: No, you know, they had to call it off because we had unexpected rainstorms, but apparently by the end of the week, uh, we're gonna have a, a controlled burn right up to the driveway.
0: Next, from Yellow Springs, Ohio, a man who has only gotten more popular after retirement is Paul from the Camerosity Podcast. Hey there, Paul. What's the most exotic country you've ever shipped a camera to?
2: You know, that's a puzzler. You know, if I think about it, I guess Iceland. I've only had one camera that I can recall that ever went
0: to Iceland. Last, but certainly not least, from Sydney, Australia, a place where it's always tomorrow, is Mr. Theo Panagopoulos. Hey, Theo, how much do you know about Greek mountains?
3: I know that's where the Greek gods were, and that's where the Greek gods deemed it appropriate that we have a good camera and Olympus was born albeit in Japan but <laughs> that's the way I'm going to take it but I do have a question is it Olympuses or Olympi or is that something we're going to solve today
0: I don't know we don't have, who's the grammar expert that we know I think it's Olympuses <laughs> it it's all Greek
1: it, It's all Greek to me
0: radius is radii so I guess Olympuses would be Olymp. I, I don't know.
1: We always refer to
2: it
0: as Olympi cameras. There you go. <laughs> with, two, uh, with two eyes. I think that's a little too academic for this show. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we got a loaded waiting room, so let's let everybody in, and maybe someone will know the answer to that. Brain bender.
3: It is a full house. Yeah, you
0: weren't kidding. It would appear that uh, Olympus is uh, pretty popular. We had, What was Mamiya we uh, loaded the room up for in the Grayflex episodes? This one's getting close. All right. We have, uh, in addition to us four, an additional 10 people, some return guests. Uh, Tim Peters is back. I see AJ, Howard Sandler, Mark Faulkner is back. Patrick Rapps is back. I see a few people that I do not recognize, though. Um, Let's start with um, Stephen Strangeways. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Have uh, have you been a long-time listener, first-time caller kind of thing?
4: Exactly, and long-time reader of the website as well. Awesome. Thank
0: you. Josh Barker, uh, I see you pointing something at the camera. Welcome. Thanks. You want to introduce yourself?
5: Oh, uh, yeah. um, I'm Josh. I'm from Huntington Beach, California. Uh, Been listening for a while, but always working when you're recording, so I thought this time I'd try to join.
0: Yeah, awesome. Appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I get that a lot from people saying, I wish I could join. We haven't done a European episode in over a year. Uh, so, you know, there are other people that we'd like to get in here. But in order to have Theo from Australia plus two different time zones in the United States, that can get a little difficult. But uh, welcome. I'm glad you're able to join. Thanks. Uh, Patrick Casey, you've been on yes. the show before, haven't you? I have.
6: I have. Yeah. Okay. I've been away for a bit, but I, I, I am now back.
0: Remind us where you're from
6: Portland, uh, Oregon.
0: All right. A- and Morgan. a long
6: time Olympus user for what that's
0: worth. Awesome. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, Robert Coates. Welcome. Hi, how's it going? All right. You want to introduce yourself?
5: i from Huntsville, oh. Alabama. I was actually on the half frame episode. That's right.
0: OK. Your name does look familiar. I just <laughs> I don't remember everybody we talked to.
5: Sorry. <laughs> <No> <laughs> Huntsville, Alabama.
0: That's that's a uh, space camp, right?
5: Yep. Space camp, rocket center, all that good yep. stuff.
0: I remember visiting that when I was a kid, they had a Saturn V uh, rocket laying on its side there. I, I would yep. imagine it's still there because it's probably hard to move. Yep. <laughs> I still got it. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll, we'll come back to Tony. Uh, Placia. looks like you were able to get in. Did I say that right? Yes, you did. I think
7: I got my video working. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. You sound great. You look fine. Great. Great. Yeah. I've been listening to uh, a lot of your podcasts. I really enjoy the conversation about film cameras and, um film itself and uh, i have three olympus cameras so i thought i'd join in and when you're ready i'll be glad to contribute awesome
0: and Fantastic. patrick raps i know i've spoken to you many times before but for some reason yeah. you don't look familiar well, that's because hat. I'm
2: not in the same room. I've moved to my camera room.
0: That's right. <laughs> He's got a really neat backlit cam uh, cabinet behind him. So we always like to analyze people's backgrounds. Other than the backlighting, it's not that different from Theo's. At least looks. I know that's similar. why I did
3: it <laughs> because it's the same cabinet, with
0: IKEA. Awesome. Well, yeah.
3: Very they, cool. Yeah, I thought it looked familiar.
0: Welcome, everybody. Um, like I said, we're going to do Olympus. Uh, most of you have been on the show before, but for those of you who haven't. This is the first time you're experiencing the live recording. So we do a lot of editing, cro- getting rid of the ums and you're on mute kind of thing. So uh, you'll hear a lot of things that you don't normally hear during the normal episodes. But before you guys joined, we got asked a whopper of a question. Uh, I don't know how many of you are cunning linguists, but uh, we wanted to know if what is the proper plurality of Olympus? Is it Olympuses or what was it Olympi? Is that what the question was?
3: Yeah, Olympi, like octopi.
0: Does anybody know? What, yeah. what 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 should we go with? vote for
8: Yeah. I think it'd be Olympia, because it's Greek, wouldn't it be?
0: Olympi? Ooh.
6: I'm going to say Olympus, because so many times when something ends in an S, you just use the same with an apostrophe.
0: Okay. So I just, person, just,
6: now it would yeah. have to be O-M-D-S, uh, but that's just the updated.
7: I usually just say two Olympus cameras, and that's I leave okay. it at that. <laughs> It's yeah there. exactly
4: i always go with olympus cameras it's the same thing with car manufacturers you can't pluralize the names so you just throw in
0: cars at the end and pluralize that go. we'll see there you go we we've we've increased our uh our academic uh reputation by a tiny bit today so the
3: Camerosity podcast
0: asking the hard questions um so we're gonna do olympus oh, we've got, we've um, got aj I, I did say aj <laughs> i just didn't really actually let him speak so aj welcome back uh always a pleasure to see your um highly organized background in the um for those of you who listened to our live episode which wasn't really that live theo commented on how i wasn't tiptoeing around my my room um i i had said that i had cleaned the floor but theo you'd be proud to know that it's a complete disaster again so um <laughs> i I, I have to i have to be avoid stepping on you know stuff to uh traverse from one side of this relative mark faulkner has of anybody in the no no, no paul you've been here too But Mark has been in the room I'm sitting in, and he – use your words, Mark. You were amazed at how much smaller the room actually is than it looks in the pictures?
9: Yeah, I feel like your camera must have some sort of spatial portal or something because (laughs) it it looks way bigger here than it does in person, especially when you have all the
6: cameras strewn on the floor. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's the (laughs) anti-Tardis. Yeah, this room is – because I framed it out two years ago – it's about 10 and a half feet wide by about 13 feet this way, which isn't like normal bedroom, you know, home office type room. But with the shelves and all the clutter, it, it kind of tends to like combine in on you. But then the wide angle lenses of uh, of my laptop tend to make it look bigger than it really is again. But um, enough about rooms. Olympus, let's see. Gosh, where I mean, where should we get started? Rather than me ramble on about history, which anybody can just load up camera wiki and read about, Where should we start? Anybody want to just kind of maybe bring up what their favorite model is? Patrick Rapps has the gothic lens cap from the pen, one of the more iconic logos.
3: Were they famous for lenses or something first? Uh, That's the one question I've got. Uh, Did they actually create lenses for other cameras? Because you see them on things like the Mamias and, and, and so on.
0: Yeah, I mean Olympus's early history was similar to other optics companies like Fuji, um, even Minolta, which really wasn't even Minolta. Their name changed a couple times too. Um, there was a lot of, I, I should say, there's very little organization in pre-war optics. Um, you know, Canon mm-hmm. built the the um, Hansa cannons, but N- Nippon Kugaku made the lens mounts, the rangefinders, and lenses for them. There was a lot of cooperation. Um, remember, you know, if you put your mindset back into pre-war Japan, um, even though they had been modernizing for about fifty years prior, yeah, but seventy years prior to World War II, they they still had somewhat of an empirical Japanese Empire mentality, where they had an emperor, they had. Uh, this structure of people worked for the betterment of, of the empire. So we think of today, like you wouldn't imagine that Canon and Nikon would do much to help each other out uh, making products for each other. But back then it was very common for companies to one Japanese company to help out another. I mean, we've heard many examples of, you know, uh, Nikon making lenses for Mamiya cameras, uh, the lens mounts for Canon cameras. Um, You can find, uh, you mentioned Theo Zuiko lenses on on a, a large number of cameras. Um you have Theo the the uh the Tacan Mini A6, I think doesn't yours have a or no no that has a Takamar. I can't remember.
3: Yes, that has a Takamar. I mean they're, they're a similar situation, but yeah.
0: Yeah, but similar situation though. You can find some TLRs by some third-party companies. You can find a bunch of six by six folding cameras with Zwicko lenses. Um I have the one and only uh, Leica Thread Mount M39 Zwicko lens, Olympus made one for the Leica. It was a forty millimeter or four centimeter, um, I think, an f2.8, and uh, that's the lens I actually used on my Leica 3G review because um, I've always been a fan of the forty millimeter focal length. It it matches more like how my eyes see the world. So um, to have a to have the uh, an uncommon Olympus LTM lens at a focal length that I really, really like. It was just an opportunity I couldn't pass up. So, um, yeah, I would say, Theo, that you're right, that they were originally more famous for making things for other people than they necessarily were their own cameras because, really, it it, I mean, gosh, they had six by six cameras. I know there is an Olympus TLR. That's really rare. I've never even seen one in person. I do have, there are a couple semi Olympuses and when you talk about Japanese folding cameras, anytime you hear the word semi, that means um, like four point five by six. Yeah, so like it's not really half frame because in my you know opinion, roll film doesn't really have a native format. But uh, four point five by six is is a semi. But most of those would have zuiko lenses. So you know, I I feel like they sort of meandered the the Japanese landscape of optics companies until. Probably, I think, when Maitani created the pen was probably the first time Olympus had an a true identity as a camera maker. Because if you look back at Olympus's camera making history prior to 59, they, they were just they weren't that well known. You know, they probably were in the same group of maybe like a B-list company similar to like Irie's. Uh, Kuribayashi, which became Petri, um, Riken, which became Rico. You know, there's a whole bunch of these. Like they were better than the crappy Japanese companies that made all the toy cameras and the the one offs. You know, you never heard of again. Uh, but they weren't quite an industry leader like Nippon Kugaku or Canon or even by then Minolta um, would have been. But I feel like I feel like Maitani creating the pen. And I don't want to get too far ahead. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about the pens later. But that seems to me the turning point where Olympus kind of became like a, a, a world-renowned maker of cameras instead of a OEM provider of, of really good
3: lenses. It's probably worth diving into the pens now anyway, because, I mean, that is what really made them famous. Uh, yeah. It's, it's that half frame, the pen, the whole story behind that. Um, I mean I'm holding a, a pen S here. beautiful little camera. it's nice and tidy, neat um you, yeah, know it's got the three centimeter lens almost fits in your pocket and it's got full manual controls and shooting 72 frames takes you three years to finish a roll, but <laughs> but you get there in the end and
0: it's worth the wait. Well
1: Mike, I I have a question for you. which came first, the pen or the trip?
0: Oh the pen, big time. Yeah. the okay. trip came later. The trip was, I could just look it up, but off the top of my head, I'm going to guess 63. Here, let me look it up.
4: The really funny thing is the trip actually reused some parts from the original pen. In the pen, you've got a little red flag that pops up in the viewfinder, a kind of clear acrylic thing to warn you that it's too slow to take a picture. And that fills the entire vertical half frame viewfinder. And they simply reuse that exact same piece for the trip 35. And because you've now got a... Horizontal twenty-four by thirty-six viewfinder. It just pops up on one side yeah. of the viewfinder and doesn't
0: quite yeah. fill it. Yeah, it was sixty-seven is when the first trip came out, um, and they intentionally designed it to resemble the uh, the pen. I, I think wisely so, because even by sixty-seven, I feel like that there was a there was a resurgence in popularity with half frame that the pen really kicked off, and I and, by, and it only lasted about a decade. I mean, yeah, sure, there were still Japanese half-frame cameras as recently as the 80s, and, you know, the Samurai by Yoshika uh, Kodak, or, you know, whoever Kodak is today has that H35 that, you know, they they just came out with. So I I wouldn't say half-frame ever died, but it definitely had a peak resurgence from about 59 to the late 60s, and I think Olympus was wise to release the Trip 35 when they did because that was pen- Simplicity, and if you hold a pen and a trip side by side, they're they're not a whole lot different. I mean, the trip is bigger, but not by a huge amount. Um, and it even had some of the models even had like a, a similar or even identical body covering. You could tell the design was intended to be similar enough to where you would look at it and go, oh yeah, that's an Olympus camera. But Olympus Trip Thirty Five, great camera. They produced that thing until the mid eighties. Um, fully mechanical, only a two speed shutter. Uh, you know wind knob it had the wheel just like the the pens did so that camera sold so well and was so popular and so simple and reliable you know I think that's what people really loved about it is that's a what did you call that a um, a January to December camera Paul where you develop a roll of film and it had right. like every major yeah, it's, holiday, it's holiday on it. holiday roll <laughs> the holiday roll that yeah. I think the, the trip was the holiday camera it would just get thrown in a, a bag or a luggage piece of luggage and whenever someone would go on a trip, they'd literally pull out the trip and and it, it just worked.
10: Was the half frame uh, craze driven more by the fact that they could make the cameras small or by the fact that film, as I understand it, was
0: quite expensive in Japan? It's, I think it's both. Um, it definitely was expensive. I've even done a little research trying to come up with an analogy of what a roll of film might have cost in the 60s in Japan. And while it, it, it did, it, there is a little bit of me kind of guessing around. I I had found an ad somewhere of uh, Kanaka had Sakura film, which was their brand of film. I had found a Japanese advertisement from the late fifties for Sakura film. Um, and I figured out the amount of yen. It was like, I don't know, 10 yen or something like that. And I tried to do a historical conversion from Late fifties Japan to current day Japan, and then I used a, a a currency converter from modern day Japanese yen to U.S. dollars, and, and and there is a bit lost in translation there. But for for sake of argument, it came out to be like a thirty six roll of film was the equivalent of like thirty five to forty dollars today. Oh Jesus! So it, it was it probably it isn't quite as you know literal as that, but it at least proves the point that film was extremely expensive so it was hugely appealing to people for the same amount of money they could get twice as many pictures and those zuiko lenses were so sharp that they could very easily be printed you know uh four by sixes five by sevens even eight by tens you could get pretty decent quality on an eight by ten print um, was did anybody
10: make infrastructure to sort of like uh, slide mounts, slide projectors for half
0: frame? Or sure, I'm sure they did. Yeah. I yeah. I don't or, know though who I know in the United States the 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 big killer of half frame was just Kodak hated it, and most of the photo finishers did not have a good way of handling developing of the half frame images so, so
10: it, it wasn't the advent of really small full frame like the Raleigh 35s that killed it it was
0: i don't think so i think that film just got kodak. cheaper <laughs> yeah I, kodak i think exerted their will was part of it i think film got cheaper is part of it but also like like you said the Rollei 35 and half frame cameras i'm sorry full frame cameras were shrinking in size i mean honestly even the trip in some ways probably helped you know, bring a ha- half frame to an earlier death because, you know, if, if you're really, if, if you if your goal as a photographer is to have a small portable, lightweight, easy to carry camera and the year is 1967 and you're standing in a camera shop and the salesman hands you a pen. And then on the other hand, he hands you a trip and you're kind of like weighing them back and forth. You're going to be like, gosh, it's not that huge of a difference. Um, and then you, you get the perceived higher quality of double the image size, um, you know, it, and, and let's be honest, sometimes people with larger hands don't want a super small camera. So there may have even been some people who didn't like the pens because they were too small. Uh, but to, to answer the other half of your question, Howard, When the pen was being designed, because I've read a little bit about it, it's a pretty fascinating story. I'm fairly certain I've shared it before, so I won't repeat too much of it now. But Maitani was essentially um, like the young guy, you know, the new uh, young whippersnapper that was working for Olympus. And they didn't really know what to do with them, so they kind of gave him a job, like busy work. They said, design us a camera for under 6,000 yen that could do this, this, and this. Uh, but it has to be cheap. It has to be easy to use. And, you know, at the time, the cheapest this, the second cheapest Olympus camera was something like 20,000 yen. So he had an, an incredibly tiny budget to work with, to come up with what became the first um, Olympus pen. And he ended up deciding on half frame because by making it smaller, the parts were cheaper to make, but not only that, um, he needed a tiny lens that had small coverage. um, And then it also allowed him to shrink the shutter down in size too. So I I don't think that the primary goal for Maitani who created the pen was, I'm gonna create a half frame camera. I think he wanted to make the most affordable camera that was as high of quality as he possibly could. And it just so happened to be half frame, which just so happened to appeal to a lot of people who wanted to save on the economy of, of developing film.
10: So, so the half frame uh, popularity didn't start
0: with the pen. There were others uh, maybe before. I'll answer that one of two ways. What we call half frame, we generally refer to as 18 by 24 on 35 millimeter film. That's going back to the late 1800s. That was Edison's frame size it, for the kinetoscope. Oh,
10: yeah. I, right. I didn't think about that. that's, movie, that's movie size. Yeah.
0: Right. So if you think back to the original motion picture, cine cameras of the early 20th century, they probably didn't measure them in millimeters, but whatever the inches equivalent to that would be it was, basically four sprockets. Edison's cameras are what standardized the spacing of the sprockets on 35 millimeter camera. So a full frame 36 millimeter image is actually just eight sprockets. So half frame is four sprockets. So back then, when the first still cameras were created that used 35 millimeter motion picture film, they rightfully used the same size exposed image. Uh, The Ansco Memo, um, there's an Agfa memo too. the uh, there's, a, there's a bunch of them. The, the tourist multiple had it um, a few others, even when um, Barnack Oscar Barnack wanted to create the, the first Leica, he wanted an image larger so that he could test the film and get the best possible image quality so he was really the first. I mean, there were other people that did it too i don't want to get in the ins and outs of someone being the first because you're always going to be wrong no matter what you say but um <laughs> Barnack created the original prototypes of the Leica as being what they called double frame so you had single frame and double frame and that terminology was pretty commonly used up until about the war so you had cameras like the the universal mercury which is actually something like 17 millimeter by 24 it's it's close enough though so half frame what we call half frame now was single frame in full frame what we call it now back then was called double frame so even though we you know collectors today still use that term it didn't really get called half frame until about when maitani created the pen so i i don't know that he like sat down one day and said, I'm going to rename this half frame. And that's what everybody in the world is going to call it. But the, the the usage of the term half frame wasn't really that common prior to 59. It was just single frame and double frame. So
3: I suppose at that point, everybody thought of a frame as the, the, the eight sprocket. Right. right. After liter, the aura. Yes. So it kind of made sense that people would even organically start referring to it as half frame because that's right. what they knew
0: as a frame at that point. Correct. Uh, I, I don't think anyone was still using the the double frame. The um the Mercury, the Universal Mer- Mercury Two, was produced after the war, and it was still a you know single frame camera. But I mean, it it pretty much fell out of use by 1950. Any companies still making a single frame camera after the war? Those were now the, ex- it, the exceptions to the rule. the w- The war changed a ton of things about the state of photography. One of which is it. It put the nail in the coffin for single frame and double frame. Just became normal. So that's that. Yeah, Theo, you you basically said it way shorter than I just did.
1: Well, I I have a question for our esteemed assembled panel. Um, not counting the 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 F, which I'm sure we'll get to in a second. But of the original pin line, I see that like at least half of you all held up your pins when we mentioned the pin. Uh, there's a rather bewildering array of models of the pen. And I know that for people that are just getting into it, it can be a bit intimidating to know which pen to go for. So I just wouldn't, I'd be curious to hear just like a quick survey of uh, you know, what pen you have and what you like shooting and which one you'd recommend for a person looking to get into the pen line.
4: I think I've got a few of every mostly just as a collection, but I did shoot with them um, quite regularly a few years ago, quite a few years ago now. And it's interesting because the Pen EE cameras that have the selenium meter around the lens, little electric eye, those are very common. And when they work, they're fantastic, but they are getting a little less reliable these days. So some of the earlier cameras, the original Pen and the Pen S, which have manual controls as well as the Pen D series. There's a Pen D D2 and D3. Those have meters but can still be used manually. Those seem to be a, a really good option. That if you have an external light meter or just want to use the Sunny 16 rule, they can be pretty reliable.
5: I agree on the ease. I've had bought two of them now, and both of them ended up not working. So no luck with those. But I've got two. Uh, I've got an original and an S. Uh, unfortunately, the the original's got a stuck shutter now. So. You know has got suggestions for who to service it let me know
2: yeah robert uh uh i would send it to alan wade that camera oh. works in in waterford new york okay thanks there's not much that he can't repair when you're talking about the pens i can tell you what to look for one thing to look for when you look at a pen count the strap lugs if it has one strap lug, it's an original version
5: yeah this one's got that's the, that's the
2: original the other thing to look for is the flash um Around the inside of the lens, you can't see it in this picture, but around the inside of the lens, it has the word flash in red letters. That means it's a very, very early version.
0: And those weren't even made by Olympus. They were built, they were outsourced. Was uh, Is that right? Yeah. I can't remember the name of the company, but when Maitani, I, I mentioned earlier, was challenged with building this cheap, inexpensive, easy to use camera, no more expensive than 6,000 yen. When he actually produced it and showed it to the board, they were so impressed Um, They immediately wanted to make it, but they were concerned that such a cheap camera might somehow diminish their image. So, and they, and they weren't convinced it would sell in large numbers. So they outsourced it to like a sister company or someone they had partnered with, but demand was so high, so quickly that that company immediately their capacity was exceeded and Olympus kind of swallowed their pride and said, all right, we'll take it over. But that's, that's the difference, Paul, is the ones that have the flash and red letters are the original originals. Well, the
2: other, the other part of the story is they're exactly like a 35s. It's the thinnest aluminum I've ever seen on a camera shell. And it's really rare to find one, even a brand new one. <laughs> I We've think you d- can find dents on it. This one, this one is, is like new in the box and it has two dents. It's just, it's a really thin aluminum. So if just the slightest amount of, uh. Walking around with it, you can, you can ding it up. I
0: think in addition to thinner aluminum, the, the common uh, thing you'll see with cameras that often are dented is the small ones with the wrist strap. I mean, they were, they're designed to be carried around and people just kind of swing their arms and they're more likely to take a bang against a railing or something while you're at the zoo or, or, or something like that. And I, I think that that also contributes to why they're always dented. Uh, this is Tony and I'm
7: from New Jersey. I forgot to mention before. I have the EES. Uh, I think it's from 1962. The S model has the 2.8 lens. I got it this year and um, at a good price because the Selenium meter was broken, but I am able to, it has a 1 of a second shutter and I'm able to adjust the aperture. So I ran a roll of film through it and it was, it came out pretty nice. Uh, it's, it's a great little camera. Very solid, no dense heavy but it's a it's a great little camera i think the half frame is kind of a niche product i mean it most people i think would get it because of going on vacation you know you can take a lot more pictures with film that would be the reason i would have gotten it um this is my first half half frame camera but go ahead
0: in addition to them having really sharp lenses another benefit today is We can extract, I think, greater detail with modern scanners than they really could have with the photo finishing machines back then. So to shoot a a high, not only that with like T-Grain technology like Kodak developed, you you put a roll of T-Max or whatever through a pen, shoot it today, and then scan it using a a higher quality digital scanner. And you're going to get quite a bit more detail out of those things than even people back then did. One of
4: the stories about the original design and the budget limitation that he had with it was that Maitani really put a lot of effort into the lens. And it's a Deezuico lens, which means it has four elements. And everyone in those days expected that a small, cheap camera would have a three-element lens. So they went with a cheaper body. They used some thinner metal there, but really went all out on the design of the lens. And that's why it delivers such sharp images.
0: Hey, Stephen, how did you know that it's a four element, just by looking at the name?
4: All of the Zuiko lenses, at least for a while, would use letters. So uh, C Zuiko, if it existed, C is the third letter of the alphabet, would be three elements, D is four elements, E is... oh he talked too much.
3: Oh, no, this was a really interesting piece, because I yeah. read about that as well. I remember
6: Nikon certainly did that in the early 60s. Okay. There was a letter in there which indicated
8: yeah. how many elements was in the Nikkor lens. Minolta did the same thing, but it was a hybrid of like the Olympus and the Nikon series where like the, the Nikon used either Latin or Greek letters to signify the amount of lens elements. And um, of course, Olympus just did the ordinal of the uh, the number of the letter. But Minolta did a, a hybrid where, for example, like a, uh, a Zwicko, not a, Zuico, a uh a Rockhor P-F lens. The P would be for pent. So five groups and F would be A, B, C, D, E, F. Six <laughs> elements. That's six elements in five groups. Which, like, why would they do that? That's kind of strange. Yeah.
1: Well, I will say that that after our our half frame episode that we had a while back, I rushed out and bought myself a Pin D two, and uh, it's a crazy fun little camera. It's super super you know compact and and heavy, but it's got the F 1.9 one point nine thirty two millimeter lens,
0: and it is a cracker of a lens. So F means six, right? Six elements. Yes.
1: Six element, uh, 1.9, and a pin, and uh, like you said before, like I think it was Stephen that said that uh, even though the the is about one stop off, you can shoot it manual, and it's just a you know totally easy to use. It's become you know quite the pocket camera for me. I carry it all over.
6: Mike, I I, I can't help but say this, but do uh, you think the Olympians handed my uh, handed the designer a Herculean task? <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: couldn't his name, I couldn't help. No, I mean, it, and that's kind of coming back to what I was alluding to earlier, is that Olympus was certainly a good company. They were well known within Japan, but I don't know that they had an identity until Maitani created the pen. And then just about the time when Half Frame was dying, he came up with the OM series, which originally was the M1, M actually standing literally for Maitani, but lights had an issue for whatever reason. With, uh, at the time, a small Japanese company coming up with an SLR called the M1, when they also had an M1. So they ended up just adding an O in front of it. But uh, the first year that the OM1 was in production, they were called M1. So if you're a collector and like uh, little variants like that, if you can find an OM1 that's an M1, uh, it's worth a little bit more. But otherwise, they're the same camera.
1: Mike, which came first, the, the Pen F or the M?
0: Pen F. The SLRs came in the 60s. The half-frame SLRs were all 60s. Okay. The M came out and correct me if I'm wrong, Paul. 72, 73. Uh, earlier than that, I think, like 70,
2: 71, 70 or 71.
0: I don't want to quibble, but I'm I'm almost positive it
6: was 72. I mean, it's 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 a silly thing to quibble about. Yeah, yeah. I just remember 72. I was shopping at the time and it wasn't quite available in 70 it would have been announced in 72 perhaps in this country you couldn't get them until late 72 early 73
9: i'm on the i'm on the olympus website because believe it or not we get once a year we get a uh, rep from the technical rep from olympus and they are they're always coming down talking to us that before olympus even got into uh, the photography side which was in the 30s uh in the 1800s they were into microscopes so they've that's been true. lens, They were working on lenses way before they were were there. Were they were anywhere near photography. But I got the Pen F over here, and it's September 1963.
0: I did an article last year on ranking each Japanese camera maker's first SLRs, and I Olympus is the only one I had to go to a half frame because they really once the Pen series took off in terms of 35 millimeter. That's pretty much all they focused on. The trip was their first attempt at a, a a full frame 35 millimeter camera they,
10: they did have sl like full frame slrs before the om that were full size and
0: they had one i don't hear SLR. much
10: about them i don't think they were anything special
0: but it's not plural it's there was a single model can anybody okay. name what the the one 35 millimeter full frame slr was before the m1 was it ftl or something like that yeah yeah you're right it was called the ftl yeah i i think i've seen it in like a junk
10: box in some yard sale so
0: this camera the big deal with these is that um there is m42 screw mount and uh so it's one of the few like i mentioned earlier i have a leica thread mount zuiko lens well these lenses are the only zuiko lenses you can get in screw mount so finding the ftl was only made for about a year i think maybe 18 months um you can find the bodies pretty easily on ebay uh but rarely with a lens and the reason is is that everybody wants to shoot as we go on a screw mount so you could adapt this to a pentax to any number of screw mount slrs uh, but one thing that is kind of neat about it is it op- it supports open aperture shooting um in order to do that it has a locking pin so we've talked before about the pentax es2 the ashika ax the electro ax um, the Shinon, what the CE? I think it's called the CE two three whatever. Um, they usually have some kind of mechanism on the lens mount that allows you to positively know when to stop rotating the lens. Like if you think about it, a normal screw mount, you just tighten it until it stops moving. But yeah. every camera is slightly different. You know where that lens actually stops moving is slightly off and and that slight difference makes a difference in the position of everything so in order to have that coupling between the body and the lens correctly um these companies usually had to add either a little notch i'm not going to try and show it but there's a tiny little notch inside the lens mount that slides into a pin on the body so that even though it's it's still a screw mount lens um when it when you get it as far as it'll go it clicks into place but I would disagree with you, Howard. This was actually a very good camera. They were built to very good quality. Um, it's a larger body. It's more the size of like a Minolta SRT-101 in terms of size because you know the M1, the OM series were very famous for how compact they were. This is more like the classic 60s full frame size. But the build quality on it is very, very good. The lenses are excellent. Uh, this is a G's Wico, so it's a seven-element lens. They did make a couple other lenses in that mount. But um, the, the one thing I would say, that I should, the one con for the FTL is it's just kind of generic looking. I mean, it it won't excite you like some other cameras might because it's just, it's there wasn't a lot of inspiration in terms of design. But I, I would say that this camera was built to as good of a build quality as other later Olympus SLRs. They're just hard to find with a lens, because, like I said before, everybody wants to sacrifice the lens for digital. When, when was so. that in production? Is that late 60s? So it, it came out. So we talked we, we looked it up. The M1 came out in 72. This came out in 71. So this oh, really? camera only beat the M1 by one year, okay. I think. when Because I've done a full review of this. Um, I should read my own review before I talk about it. But I think this camera was in production as early as 69. Uh. But for whatever reason, it kept getting delayed. The, the the most common version of the story is that maitani had nothing to do with this he was aware that it was being made but it was almost like an insult to him that he was working on uh cuz there like sorry to jump around but there actually is a prototype of the M1 that looks completely different it looks more like um like a bronica a, a miniature bronica or a miniature hasselblad like that rollei one the rollei yeah. uh SLR. The, the, yeah the we were talking about it and and One or two episodes ago, the 6006 or something, it's more of a, it's not as wide. So, Maitani was coming up with a real revolutionary new SLR. I think the bean counters at Olympus were starting to get impatient and they said, Well, we need something. And Maitani wasn't going to be ready with his new camera for another couple of years. So, they sort of rushed uh this thing to be created and, and by the time the FTL came out the M1 was only a year away so this this was a stopgap. It's
3: got a very much a Mamiya look to it, doesn't it?
0: Well and it's funny because I've not found anywhere I've not found a book. I've I've looked around on various Olympus historical websites. There's a whole lot of theories about who made this. Some people say Olympus did actually make it but that just seems hard to believe because at the time for them to have put all the effort to create a brand new SLR from scratch when they were already working on another brand new SLR that they knew would only be released for a short period of time just seems highly implausible. Cause I mean, this camera is unlike any other camera Olympus has. And Um, it's not
9: even in the Olympus museum uh, website.
0: Yeah. So, but it, it, I have looked at a whole bunch of Pusina's, I've looked at a bunch of Shinons, um, even some Ricos, some Mamias, like you said, Theo, and it doesn't perfectly match any other brand that I've seen. So okay. somebody made this camera, and most people tend to believe it was not Olympus. We think that somebody else kind of had it already in the works, and they maybe paid them money to finish it. Um, maybe they collaborated. Maybe they gave the basic specs to some other company and just said, build this for us. Uh, but there's no one knows for sure. I mean, even the few times there was an interview that Maitani did, I think in 2005 before he passed away, he doesn't even mention it. Like it's such an afterthought that, that just no one really knows who made this camera.
4: I think a lot of people assume it's going to be a known company, like it's going to be Minolta. But there were a lot of companies that never released things under their own names. Like you were talking earlier about the original pen. Uh, that was originally made by a company called Sanko Shoji, which is not a name anyone would recognize. So it's entirely possible that the FTL was built by a company that never made things under their own name, always just contracted and outsourced manufacturing from other companies.
6: It's interesting that Maitani felt the need to have a totally new lens mount uh, when he did the OM or the M1, and he decided he wanted a bayonet, not a screw mount. That's interesting.
0: Well, that, by by the 70s, I, that's where most of the companies were going to. Oh, sure, rem- sure. Remember by then, Nikon, Canon, uh, oh, yeah. Konica, Minolta, all, all the big ones had already switched over to bayonets, and bayonets were really the best way. I mean, that's I was talking earlier about that pin. You have to positively mount a lens to where it's always in the exact same spot, and that's really hard to do with screw mounts. So bayonets offer those advantages at, at the... And they're also just easier to put on and off, minus the Canon. And even Pentax went to the K mount. So when they went over, that was it. Yeah. Well,
1: Mike, before we completely jump over to the M series, I just want to give a little bit of love to the the Pin F and the FT, which I think is just one of the most genius designs of any camera. I mean, it's just, there's so many innovations. It's such a solid camera. You know, I think it's it's, it's one of the, the few SLRs that I think actually stands up to, let's say, a, a Leica M3 as far as just this innovation per ounce and uh, and and just the quality, the lenses that come with that camera are spectacularly cool and, and good. Uh, I know that when I traveled to Japan in November, uh, my primary camera was my Pen F with the uh, 1.4, 40 millimeter. And I just think that, that for, for anybody who's interested in an SLR, um, you know, even if you're only marginally interested in half frame that the pen f is such an exquisite design that it deserves you know at least you know attention and 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 experience shooting it because I I don't know many people who have shot with a pen F or an FT who don't recognize what an amazingly cool camera it is.
8: It's a, a marvel of miniaturization in that they were able to get like the SLR viewfinder in that and they were able to do that using the Paro mirror system, which if you ever look through the viewfinder of a pen F it's really bright for a Paro mirror. So that's, you know, kudos to Olympus for being able to make mirrors of that high quality that it looks that good.
0: Well, and the shutter is a focal plane rotary. And the, the benefit to that is it flash syncs at all speeds, you know, unlike your typical horizontal or vertical focal plane shutters that can only X sync up to a certain point when you have the rotary shutter, like um, like the robot the robot had a rotary shutter. So it's not the same as the robots, but it's still a rotary shutter. And that's the... Tim, do you know the material it's made out of? Was it like titanium or something? They had to use a very, very lightweight metal.
8: Yeah, and I think it's it might be titanium. That sounds Steven, familiar,
0: yeah. Stephen shaking his head, yeah. Yeah, it's titanium. definitely titanium, yep. Yeah, so, and that's, I mean, we, you know, Apple won't hesitate to remind you that the new iPhone has a titanium frame. But uh, <laughs> in, in the 1960s, getting... A lightweight material, not only just getting the raw material, but f- machining it to that thin of a piece and that precise of a tiny thing was was a tremendous engineering feat.
8: It was super hard for even Nikon, like in their original, like yeah. Nikon F, getting the titanium thin enough for the foil mm-hmm. was so difficult at the first. I think what hundred units or something were given cloth with shutters, uh, silk yeah. shutters, because they couldn't get the titanium thin enough. Yeah, that's true.
4: And if you look at a lot of older cameras, they had shutters, leaf shutters that were made by other companies. And then when we got into vertical metal bladed focal plane shutters, those were often made by Copal. So there was a brief time period where you had Olympus designing and making their own shutter. That's, I think, a little bit unique. Very true.
0: Yeah, the, the, the pen, I don't want to skip over the pens, too, or the, the pen FSLRs, but I found almost anybody that has owned a pen FSLR almost always raves about it. Like I don't know that I've ever run into someone who owns one. Is like, eh, it's okay. It it seems to be like once you handle it, because like Tim mentioned, they were able to fit the entire prism in sideways. That's why it has a flat top. It doesn't well, look like a, prism, a normal it's a mirror. Well, that's
8: the cool part
0: about it. Right,
3: it's a Paro mirror. I I've actually just started shooting with mine for the first time. I've got the first film through it, and I have to actually, um, and I've got the FT, and I'm really enjoying it. I I actually didn't realize what I was missing out on until I actually started shooting the last couple of weeks with it. It's, it's really handy, really easy to carry around. I've got the 38 millimeter lens on it. Uh, and then, um, and I've also got the 100, which I, I believe is actually quite, quite a uh, beautiful lens for portraits. My personal favorite lens is the, uh, I've got the 25 which
5: is an awesome lens too.
0: Anthony, wasn't there a pen lens that you said is notorious for either desilvering or separation or something
1: oh it's it's one of the wide angle lenses it's one that uh johnny's been trying to get for ages and every copy he had was trash okay um but i don't i don't remember specifically which one it might have been the 35 or uh the 28 okay. I, don't, I don't remember which one
5: there's there's two isn't it's an f4 or an f3.5 and an f2.8
0: yeah i have the 25 f4 that you just mentioned I, that's the only wide angle 10 f lens i have
5: and then there's also a 20 f4 I believe yes i think one. that's
6: true did any of the uh uh, uh the, the secondary lens makers vivitar and soligor did they make stuff for the half frame olympus ever
0: that's a good question
6: not that i've ever seen don't you know, know that i've
0: seen
4: one there was a third party teleconverter that was made but that mm. i think was it i yeah. think the
8: uh, budget brands that was a little bit of a later trend because like we said the slrs that the pen slrs were from the 60s and you don't yeah. see Proportionally as much of those yeah. off brands, then it really kicks off in the seventies. Certainly,
1: and I know that Olymp- Olympus also made a series of adapters for for the Pen F. So I've got the Pen F uh, adapter for uh, Xacta lenses, which is great because I can shoot my Biotar uh, <laughs> on on my Pen F, and it is really stunning. Gives you great results. Uh, they're outrageously expensive if you can find the original OEM adapters now. Uh, but I believe they made them for at least three or four different mounts.
3: And, of course, now you you can adapt them the other way as well on the Micro Four Thirds, on the on Olympus Pen Digitals uh, or OM pens these days.
0: I missed it real quick, but Matt Murray jumped in. Uh, Matt loves cameras. He was on one of the more recent episodes, so welcome back, Matt. But also, we skipped over a camera that I don't even own, but I'm wondering if any of you have ever tried Olympus did in the 50s make a very short-lived interchangeable lens, 35-millimeter rangefinder called the ACE. Does anybody have one of those? No? A lot of people shaking their heads. There was... I have both the ACE and the ACE-E, which had a built-in meter. Neither
4: of them I have with me, unfortunately. There were uh, four lenses made for it. And they also even sold it in the US as a Sears Tower. I believe it was the Tower 19. 19. Sears yep. sold it as... They sold the ACE-E, which had the built-in selenium meter. And they, they never sold the original
0: that was meterless. Yeah. They're pretty attractive cameras, but I think it was a dead end.
1: I was gonna say that that if we can, you know, sort of go chronologically before we get to the uh, OM series, uh, there were the 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 three or four rangefinders that they came out with in the late 60s, the EC, the RC, and the SP, which are also a bit of a cult camera, uh, all three of them. I know that the EC was my very first camera that my dad ever gave me when I was in junior high school. And it traveled all over with me, went to concerts, I shot like a Blondie concert with it in 1977. And uh, um, and then eventually I was in a high school field trip to Mexico and got thrown into a pool with my my EC, and that was the end of my uh, Olympus. Uh, but all of those, especially the SP, even though it's a little bit large for my taste, uh, has an, a, an exquisite lens on it. Uh, the RCs, like the, the great like Goldilocks right in the middle of the camera that I would probably recommend to most people if they're interested in getting in to these fixed lens rangefinders. Uh, All three of those are really high quality, fairly affordable, and extremely reliable. I see Robert's got one of his there.
5: This is kind of the grandfather of it. It's the S2, the 35S2 with a 42 millimeter
0: F1.8. And it's a great little camera. It's not as small as those. We need to compile a list of all cameras that had the name S2. There's a (laughs) lot of them. (laughs) So what lenses on that one, Robert? Uh, a 42 millimeter F
5: 1.8. I think they also had a 2.8 or two. Yeah. F 2.8 on some of them, something like that. I can't remember exactly, but had a couple of lenses. Is it an F or
0: a G? It's a G. G. G- okay. Z-O. Okay. I just saw Mark Faulkner held up an ACE. You do have one. Yeah. It's, it's an attractive camera. I mean, it's almost a shame that it didn't do better. So yeah, they did a lot of uh, the, the fixed lens rangefinders. Anthony, I'm glad you redirected us backwards a little bit. Um, cause those full size, well, the EC was a little bit smaller, but the sixties Olympus 35 based fast lenses, they originally, some of the earlier ones were one seven or one eight. The later ones were 17. Um, the SP, like you mentioned, has a bit of a cult following. It's one of the very few fixed lens rangefinders that can do both spot and average meeting metering. It's, um, really, really nice camera. It's got, um, I think it does auto exposure too. Mine's got a dead meter, although it works fine. But um, I was going to offer a tip. If you're interested in an SP, but don't care about the electronic features, but still want the same great seven element lens, look for a camera called the 35 LC. It wasn't quite as common. I don't think they were made in quite as high of numbers as the SP was, but these almost always fall under the radar because I don't think a lot of people realize what it is. This is essentially the SP just without the advanced electronics. It, it still has a CDS meter, but it's just more like a match needle. You can see the match needle there on top, but I mean, it's got a, a bright and very high contrast rangefinder. It's got the similar size body. In fact, I think it might even be a little bit bigger, but it still has the seven element F 17 lens. And I've shot this one. I've reviewed this exact camera, on my site and, uh, it produces equally sharp and and great looking images, just like the SP does. A nice camera, Mike. There was, now, there was um, a version of the SP that was sold in Japan only called the UC. It's super rare, though. And it's just a cosmetic version of the SP. But uh, if you're a completist, there's quite a few rangefinders from the 60s that uh, you can collect. And then they got into the model like the EC and the RD, the RC. I can't remember all of them. But uh, they got more into the electronic shutter ones in the 70s, too, similar to like what Canon with the Canonet and uh, Minolta were getting into at the same time. But yeah, I mean, whether you're into SLRs or rangefinders, like I mentioned before, Olympus did make one TLR, very hard to find. They had some great folding cameras, Olympus 6. I have one with a Zuiko lens. Um, there were the semi Olympuses if you're into 4.5 by 6. Um, they had with inter- the one interchangeable lens rangefinder, a ton of fixed lens rangefinders. They had a ton of the the pen series. Um, Anthony's, in, in fact, the last time we did the half frame episode, Anthony, you went out and bought the D, like literally the next day, uh, which which all have the fast f one nine or f one eight lenses.
3: So there's a lot to love. Um, Anthony, you recently went to Japan. I think you actually shot one of the half frame.
1: Right. I, I took I put I took my pen F with me. And uh, I was just, I was shooting the, uh, uh, mostly shooting the, the Eastman uh, Vision 350D film and just absolutely delighted with the results that I got from it.
3: Yeah, they, they were quite stunning, actually. So it, it's, yeah, anyone that says half frame doesn't produce the result is, is really just not shooting it right.
1: And then, of course, the other camera that I took with me was the Olympus XA4. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of leapfrogging past the OM ones, which by the way, I love my OM one. I think they're fantastic cameras, great lenses. Hopefully, we talk about the OM series in depth. But of the XA's, um, I have a long history with them when they were first released. Uh, the XA, not the, the not the rangefinder one, but the, was it was at the XA one, or just they just called it the XA. Uh, the first one that didn't have the rangefinder, I ended up, uh, um, going through at least three of those uh, when they were brand new. Kept on breaking them, returning them, replacing them. And I'd kind of given up on the XA line. I actually abandoned my XA for uh, a Minox uh, 35 GTE. But uh, the XA4, I was kind of a late comer to it. It's uh, It was actually um, Jeff over at I Dream of Cameras uh, was raving about his because it's got the wide-angle lens with the macro capability where just like the the, the, the uh, original Minox, it has the measuring uh wrist strap where you can do like one foot focus on it. Um and that XA four is just a firecracker of a little camera. Uh yeah, you know, I can't even, you know, it, it quickly jumped up in my list of, of most shot cameras because uh that combination of that lens and that form factor is just a, a fantastic carry camera when you're traveling.
0: Well Anthony, do you know who designed the X A? The same
1: is it was uh um, yeah at my time. Yeah. Yeah, but I, yeah,
0: my Tani is responsible for the pen, the OM1, M1, and the XA. So, you, you look at probably Olympus's three best lines they ever really sold during the film era, were all created and conceived by the same guy. And I think
2: he, he did the stylus
0: too, I think. He might have, yeah, I don't know. It was late. I mean, it was late it was in late. his career. It would have but... been late in his career. But yeah. I mean, and, and what's interesting too is when you look at those three cameras, like they're so different. You know, I mean, like there's no design consistency between the three. I mean, he truly just started over and said, I'm going to make something great. And then he did. And he's like, all right, I'm going to make something else great. And then he did. And then he's like, I'm going to try it again and do it a third time. And he did. And what he was able to do, I I don't I lack the technical knowledge of it. So I'm not going to go into it too much. But he had to do some lens voodoo. Stephen, maybe you know what I'm talking about with the XA, because that yeah, camera has a reverse retrofocus lens. So
4: explain it's basically, that. Well, it's basically like a, a telephoto lens, where a telephoto lens is physically shorter than its focal length would be. It's a wide-angle lens in the XA, but it's physically shorter than its focal length, which allowed them to tuck it in closer to the film
0: and make the camera more compact. So six element. Le- I mean, if you picture what the size of the XA, I mean, it's a tiny camera. They squoze. Is that a word for grammar nazis? <laughs> they squoze in a six element reverse retrofocus telephoto lens is actually wide angle into that itsy bitsy body. And somehow it was amazing. So there was a lot of voodoo in designing that camera. And it just, you know, he he's up there, you know, with Fukeda. Uh, You know, Oscar Barnack, uh, Nagel, you know, is, is in my mind, one of the greats in terms of camera designers of the 20th century, for sure. Would that
6: be a retrofocus lens? Like the early SLR doing a wide angle lens, they had to, or are we talking about a different optical yada yada Entire. You're
4: talking about retrofocus and this was reverse yeah. retrofocus.
10: Okay, all right. Telephoto.
4: <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: It's not True a telephoto, telephoto lens, but they use the same gotcha. principle yeah. right, 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 as a telephoto lens to squeeze as tiny as possible this little bitty lens, I mean, it's small. I mean, the camera's tiny, like as it is. So to get a six element lens in there had to have been a, a, a huge challenge, so. And yeah, the the XA is the only one with a rangefinder. The So Anthony briefly mentioned the XA1. That's not the same thing as the XA. The XA1 was an economy model, um, but they had the XA1, 2, 3, and 4, and then the original XA. You You can get some of them in different colors. I think, Theo, don't you have a red one? Or am I thinking of somebody else?
3: No, I've got, I've got the XA3, which it's is... red, uh, though. Yeah, I knew you had one of it's them. It's red. red. Yeah. And, th- and this one's got the 1600 ISO option okay. as well, which is really yeah. nice.
0: They were all pretty good. Uh, so, Anthony, are you happy we completely skipped over the OM series now?
4: <laughs> I think the thing that gets forgotten is that when the XA came out, it was one of the first, if not the first, cameras advertised as being caseless. Prior to that, you'd have a rangefinder camera and you'd have an ever ready or as people like to call them never ready case that would be leather it would screw into the bottom and have a top flap or you'd carry something in a case that you'd have to open up and pull the camera out and the XA had the sliding lens barrier that covered over the lens covered over the viewfinder had a little separate uh, on the original XA had a little separate cover for the rangefinder window so you didn't need a case for it it was small and compact you could throw it in your pocket and just quickly and easily get it ready to shoot without fumbling with a case and that that. that design carried through to the stylus film cameras. And there were stylus digital cameras with that same design that a lot of other companies adopted as well, but it was kind of the first.
0: I I mentioned in a recent episode, the Canon MC, which doesn't look a ton like the XA, but it still has that similar collapsible clamshell design. Minolta had a camera like it too. Pentax had a a camera like it too. So I, I don't know that to be true, but it makes perfect sense. And it sounds like something they would have advertised it as being caseless for sure. But let's. I guess we should step back to the OMs, because um, I I feel like that's the that's the one that people are probably maybe equal to, if not more passionate about than the pens. The one thing I will say, the first time I ever handled an X, or I'm sorry, the OM, I had an OM two was my first one, and then I later got a one and then a four. I I've never had the three, which is super expensive. But anyway, the thing that just impresses me so much about the all the OMs is just how compact it was. And when it came out, you know, when you compare 1972, Nippon Kugaki was still making knicker mats, you know, Canon was still a couple years away from the AE-1. And even when they did come out with the AE-1, the OMS are still smaller. When you hold the eyepiece to the prism of an OM to your eye, it, it almost like goes beyond the edges of the prism. Like the frame is like... Like they used every last millimeter of possible space to squeeze in a uh, full size eyepiece, full size pentaprism, and, and as small as possible the body and the the packaging of that camera. To be honest with you, is probably some of the uh, technology used to shrink down the XA. So I'll, I'll contradict myself a tiny bit and say there's there's no design commonality between the pen. And the M1 and the XA. Externally, I still think that's true. But I will say the one common thread between all three of those is upon each camera's release, they were smaller than anything else anybody else was making at the time. And again, I'm going to, it seems like Stephen is our, our Olympus technical guru here. Isn't it true that the reason the OMs have the shutter speed selector around the lens mount? because it, that was they were able to shrink the linkage to the yeah, shutter. Yeah, they were able to put the shrinkage down at the bottom of the camera right. and
4: save a lot of space in the overall height of the camera by doing that.
0: So that, I think, is the most polarizing feature. The Nickromats are the same way. For for those of you who've never handled one, picture that a typical SLR or even a rangefinder, almost always there's a, a knob or a dial on top of the camera that you rotate to change shutter speeds. On the OM series... It's a collar that's compl- that goes around the lens mount. So you're kind of cradling it with your fingers. Yeah, AJ is holding one up. A lot of people, once you get used to it, really, really like it. Because you you're basically can sh- quickly snap between shutter speeds with the same motion you would to focus the lens or change the aperture. Um, it's all in the same location. And while there is an ergonomic benefit to that, as Steven said, uh, the reason they actually did that was more of a packaging thing. It, w- it allowed them to just make the camera that much smaller because there were, the parts were smaller and in a more convenient location by doing it that way.
2: Well, and also because they, because of where they did position it, that also meant they had to change where the aperture ring was on the lenses.
0: Right. They're near the tip, right? Yep. They're on the outside. But not on all of them. I actually got corrected on that. Yeah. No, not, all. not all of them. Most of them though.
4: Definitely later on when they went to more zoom lenses, then you would find the aperture ring closer to the lens mount in yeah. the body.
0: But mo- I think most of the the primes, it's up at the tip by the filter ring. Yeah, the
8: zooms tend to have them by the mount.
6: And there's the benefit of, of starting with a whole new mount. You've started clean sheet of paper. You can put your uh, aperture ring wherever you want. You don't have any
2: legacy lenses you got to worry about. So pretty clever.
0: For sure. And that's exactly why most people did it.
2: There was one thing on that camera that, that created problems. And that was the F- XFP switch uh, for the PC terminal. Professionals hated it because if you were shooting flash, there was corded flash, and you got on the focal plane, you weren't going to have any images. Uh. That, was a, that was a problem. The other thing was that on the OM-1, and, and this, is, this is documented, the, the, the reliability wasn't terrific. National Geographic switched over their photographers to uh, their contract guys to Olympus uh, in about 74, or 75, maybe 76. And it lasted about a year. They they just simply could not get the cameras to hold up.
0: Robert Rodoloni shared a story, exactly what you just said there, Paul, where Olympus was so proud, rightfully so. It was a great camera, but they were so proud of the the M1OM1 that they wanted to get them in the hands of more pros. And they, they essentially gave them away to certain news agencies, or you said National Geographic. Um, and while they're they're fine cameras, they're more than reliable and up to the task of a family snapshot, uh, even maybe advanced amateur usage, the, the rigors of true heavy-duty professional use, they just fell apart. They, they I couldn't. remember
6: W. Eugene Smith. I mean, he was on the payroll, but I remember him in a lot of their print ads of uh, Gene Smith in a in know, mine, probably the, the mini Mata stuff. I think he shot on an Olympus, uh, but I well remember him uh, uh, turning up in their ads for years.
1: And David Bailey.
5: Yeah, yeah. W. Eugene Smith also used pens or was paid to use pen maybe, but I know he did in some of his work.
6: Oh, yeah, I remember. I've seen I've seen an app picture. I can just visualize right now an ad with him and a pen uh, smoking. No wonder the guy died young, but... I've got a question about my OM 2N. It has
0: this little my uh, then sticker on the back with the designer name on it, and I don't know what that would oh, have that's been very from. Cool. Can you redo what, what it says, Mark? This is Maitani uh, Olympus oh, it has... it. Oh, yeah. okay. it. I've never seen that before. That's I remember weird. him
6: in the print ads as well. The uh,
0: the eye of Maitani. I wonder if that's some kind of a limited edition or souvenir. Or maybe it's like Paul's Yellowstone National Park Kodak Brownie where some clever... Store just got a bunch of stickers and put it on there.
1: Maybe that was his camera,
0: or like, a, or like, a,
9: like a dealer thing. Maybe I don't know. Uh
0: You should put it on eBay and say Maitani Signature OM One. <laughs>
9: it's even his signature's even in gold, so that makes it even. Yeah, worth gold. More. Yeah, golden
0: yeah. Mitani Signature Olympus OM One. Uh, and start your opening bid at about like five thousand dollars and see if you get any action on it. <laughs> I've seen a lot of Olympus cameras, but that's not one I've seen before, yeah. so that's
4: new to me. <laughs> but one thing is there are actually a lot of signed cameras because Maitani was famous for carrying around a diamond tip pen with him. And so if, when he ran into someone who had an OM-1 or one of his cameras, he would autograph it and engrave oh, his cool. signature ah. into the body. Oh, that is amazing. Oh, that's, cool. that's a fun. He was definitely a celebrity among designers. I don't think any other camera company advertised the name and photo of their designers the way Olympus did with him.
1: And, you know, if you're interested in the OM series, the lenses are just fantastic. I got to tell you that the uh, the 51.4, I'll put that up against any 51.4 lens out there. They're very good. It's um, it's a, it's a it, And for a fraction of the price of like the Zeiss 51.4, uh, it's just, it's a great lens. Uh, it, it just, it's like the one lens I never take off of my OM-1.
0: Well, that's the same reason the pen lenses are so attractive today is because they're designed to cover half frame. Um, which is almost, not exactly the same, but it's very, very close to APSC Crops for Crop Sensors. So people love using actually, the Camerosity podcast does not endorse the sabotaging of pen lenses for digital use, but if you did already have one and you wanted to get an adapter, they're razor sharp.
8: Now, Mike, back to what you're saying about the uh, reliability of the Olympus uh, OM series. I have to comment, because this is nothing um, short of miraculous, in my opinion. My father bought a almost new om1 he bought it used technically but the previous owner had it for one single day um he bought it back in 1977 brought it to six continents put hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rolls of kodachrome through it hasn't been serviced once and it still works factory well right now so
0: i have never ever come across an om that didn't work um at least not with fresh batteries but like the story Paul shared, though, with National Geographic, and um, I've heard this before, that Olympus did try to sell their ca- or give away their cameras to, to get news agencies to switch over from Nikon to Olympus. And they when you get to that level of extremity in a wartime going in extreme climates, that's that was the limit, you know, and I don't think I would be shocked if any more than a fraction of a percent of all other Olympuses ever saw that level of severity. And I think that's where the line was.
8: I think part of it might also be to do with the fact that it has a cloth shutter, where a lot of the other major brands used metal shutters at the time.
0: So here's this question, Tim, you could answer. Uh, let's pretend you're at a thrift shop or a garage sale and you find an Olympus OM2 or an OM4. More than likely, the shutter's stuck. Oh, I know that. Does that mean the camera's broken? You should just throw it away? No,
8: sir. No, sir. I have an OM2 MD. Uh, It just means that you got to push the um, shutter dial all the way to one side. There should be a little button labeled reset or something like that on the bottom. I think it has a star next to it. You press that in, you slide it to the side, you keep rotating, and the mirror should pop down because you need a battery to operate.
0: Right.
2: Mm. Well, you not only need a battery, you need a silver battery. Don't ever use a lithium battery or an alkaline 76 battery in an OM2 or or an om3 or four uh, they they simply do not they they just don't hold up
3: yeah I I've yeah, got this um uh, yeah I've got this OM two um spot program model here and I was at a camera show recently and the guy wanted to show me that it worked so he stuck some batteries in it and 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 did that and it didn't work and he goes oh I'm not going to fix that why don't you just take it and sure <laughs> enough yes Exactly what everybody's just been saying. Yeah.
8: Yeah, the Olympus is very sensitive to batteries, especially in the auto exposure. Like the, the OM two has the aperture priority mode to it. And I found that with the if you do put a um, an alkaline battery in it, it chronically underexposes everything, even with exposure compensation. So I mean, even compared to like the contemporary Nikon or Minolta, for example, uh, you just really have to use a voltage regulated battery or like the hearing aid batteries, for example, I've I've found work well.
2: The thing about the OM2 was that it was really a camera that they marketed for, for technical and scientific type use, because it worked with all their photomicrography, with all the microscopes. You know, it was the first camera that really had a full TTL flash metering system. Uh, it metered off the film plane for exposure. So for use with any kind of uh, of instrument that they also made, it was the camera that... that uh, was recommended for it.
8: Also, what I'll say is the OM2 is a great camera if you want to, um, provided you have the right batteries, a great camera if you just want to walk around with aperture priority auto exposure because the camera is always on, but it's not draining the battery. If you're using shutter speeds from, I think, a 30th faster, um, you don't actually need to flip the power switch on. It'll just automatically, when you press the shutter button, meter and stop down appropriately or, or meter and set the shutter speed appropriately where you only have to turn it the switch to the on position. If you want to use any speed slower than a third, so I think that's really neat because, like the cool. Nikon's, for example, you have to pull the the lever out, and that gets in your eye, or some of the Minoltas, you have to, you know, flip the switch on the bottom, which is kind of non-ergonomic.
2: With the TTL metering, the way we always used to show them, well, you would take the camera, hold your hand tight over the lens, fire the shutter, then move your hand, and the the second you move your hand, the shutter would fire. The shutter would open. Or it would actually close because it it's metering off the t- off the film, uh, right? Rather than than sl uh, up inside
0: the body. To circle back on the battery thing and the uh, you found a, a two or a four, Tim. You started to mention about the lock. So you, if you look at and there's only the two and the four because the two and the four is the ones with the electronic shutters. The one and the threes. Good luck finding a three. But if you find a one, this is you don't have to worry about the one because it's a mechanical shutter. But the twos and the fours of an electronic shutter, if the battery is dead or just simply not inserted, you'll notice there is a button that says lock. Some of them are, have a B in orange. Some of them have a star. But on the two, you push that in and you turn the shutter speed dial to bulb. And if you look at the ring on a two, the bulb is the only setting in orange. And orange means mechanical. So it's it's like Nikons will usually fire their electronic shutter SLRs at 1 90th of a second. The Olympus OM2, even with no battery in it, if you put it in B, fire, or I'm sorry, wind the camera, it still fires, right? So this is a way you can test even without a battery, whether this, I mean, there still could be other problems with it, of course, but this would be how you would test an OM2 on the fly, you just stopped at a random garage sale and found one and just want to make sure it works. The OM4 is basically exactly the same. It still has the lock button, but in addition to having an orange B, it also has an orange 60. So this shutter, the OM4, you can actually fire the camera with no power at all all day long at one sixtieth of a second. So load in some Ilford 50 or... You know, something close to close enough to 160th of a second, you shoot some sunny 16 and with no battery in it at all, even though it is an electronic shutter camera, an OM4 will fire all day long with no power. Now, the second you turn it to one of the white speeds with no power and try to wind it, the mirror gets stuck up in the upper position. And if you take the lens off, you'll see what Paul was talking about, it meters off of the inside of the curtain. Well, they printed this, it looks like a QR code. They didn't, they didn't call it that back then, but it's like this white and black speckled grid pattern. Yeah. Mark's holding it. I mean, it literally looks like a QR code.
8: It was meant to represent the average photographic scene. So that's actually a a computer generated sequence.
0: Yeah. So if you ever see that, that's our tip of the day. I, I offer the tip of the uh, the discount Olympus 35 SP is called the LC, same lens. Uh, if you find a two or a four, uh, use Theo's method. See if you can convince them to think the camera's broken, when in reality, it, it's probably just locked up because of either a dead battery or no battery at all. So get the right battery, uh, or if you don't have access to the right battery at that moment, you can reasonably check to see if the shutter will fire by unlocking it and moving it to one of the orange settings on the shutter speed dial.
3: I hate to contradict you, Mike. Uh, I'll probably oh. It's in my nature to do it anyway. But, dun
0: dun dun! <laughs>
3: <laughs> but you mentioned the OM4 has the sixtieth and not the OM2. Well, I've got an OM2 right here, and I'm not sure if it's going to come up on the on the screen there. But it's got a is it? OM is yours the program sixtieth or the? S? Yes, it is.
0: That's why. Yeah, I I I I should have clarified. Um, they eventually did add that, but uh, I have this is an OM2N, and it does not.
3: Okay, this is the spot
0: program one.
4: The spot program is basically an OM3 or OM4, and then the original OM2 is basically the OM1, but the OM2 SP yeah. or spot program came much later and was built off of the body of the 3 and 4.
0: So you're, you're right. that I should have clarified the later ones did have it, uh, but it's still true, though, that any of the orange settings are will allow the electronic shutter to fire yes. mechanically. Yes, it does. That's still true. Yeah. And you you still do have to use the lock button. To unlock it initially because if the camera locked it will not let you change it direct you like if you try to turn the shutter speed dial it'll get to one and it won't go any further you have to press and hold the lock button to allow you to go into b mode or or the orange 60.
1: uh so i was going to try to change the subject quickly to ask and i don't know if this is a a, a mic question or a matt question but uh you know when did olympus become known for the point and shoots what was the point and shoot that really broke them through the market I mean they kind of already had that with the trip and with the pin uh, but there was a point where they became like a modern point and shoot camera uh, company and it was definitely after the uh, the sort of the XA had run its its course
0: I'll let Matt answer that but my guess is going to be around the time the trip went out of production that's probably when they did that.
11: I don't know, actually. Uh, that's, a, that's a great question, Anthony. I know that, you know, I've got loads of Olympus cameras because they're so compact. I love compact cameras. I've got the XA with the flash on there. I've got a trip. I've got a pen FT. And I can only echo what um, other people, including Anthony and Theo have said about the FT. It's such a wonderful camera. And the one thing I wanna say about the FT, actually going back to that, is when you look through the viewfinder, being a portrait orientation, it just gives you a different view of the world and different way of photographing. Um, But moving on to the point and shoots, um, yeah, I don't know when, I think it was probably the late 80s, early 90s. And so you've got the Olympus uh, stylus here, uh, which is the Mew 1. Also got the Starless Epic, which is the Mew 2. That's the one that everyone wants. I actually prefer the Mew 1. It's got an f3.5 lens over the, the Mew 2. It's got the f2.8 lens. But um, for me, I always like to turn the flash off on these point and shoots. Uh, of course, it's all auto with these things. On the Mew 1, it, there's a button on the top there. It's really easy for people like me who are wearing glasses and can't see stuff. On the Mew 2, it's it's a really fiddly little button. you got to press in on the back. And uh yeah, so for that reason, I, I generally prefer the original stylus over the stylus epic. Um, but having said that, I am shooting the Stylus Epic this year on the, the Frugal Frugal film project for an entire year with with Color Plus. And I'm I'm looking I'm looking forward to it. Uh, the only other one a camera I want to show you is the LT1, which I know that someone else showed recently a Zoom version. I can't remember who it was. I, it this was, is I, one the of the LT105. Yes, that was the Zoom in one, the wasn't the burgundy. it? Burgundy. Yours is in the yes. Burgundy leather also. I've got the burgundy. I've got a brown one somewhere which is battered as anything, but this is the burgundy prime, um, you know, prime lens version. Love this camera. Absolutely beautiful. Um, I'm, I'm keeping this one as, as a shelf queen because my other one got battered too much. Yeah, that's the one with the built-in leather case. That's that's a really cool design it is it is it feels like a, a bit like a purse or something so it does feel you know I, I kind of question my masculinity sometimes when i'm carrying this about the town but you know i'm, I'm comfortable with that so i'm happy to, to carry it matt do you have any experience with the o product like which one sorry which one the the olympus oh, o the, product. The, the really weird one the really one the one that looks like a cd no i you know what I, a couple of times it's been in my ebay uh, buy list is it that they're they're either quite expensive or they're quite... Some of them stopped working. I can't remember which one it was.
8: It was their... I forget the name of it. The But the bottom of the line point and shoot, they just rehoused it in an aluminum housing stamped at AD 1988 and made it limited edition. I mean, I, they do look pretty cool, but as far as technical very cool. specs go, they're pretty... Yeah. Crummy, yeah, yeah, that's
11: right. I think when I looked into it, it looked it looked so super cool and advanced, and like, oh wow, this is really special. But when you looked at it, like you said, it was just it was just a reboxed version of something else. Yeah, it was, of a, it was a meant as time. a collector's
8: item. There, ah. I think five thousand of them were made, I think, something wow. like that. There was a very low production round run of them, and they were sold in these box sets with the flash and the strap and such. Yeah, but they're they're neat to look at. They're really works of art. But if you're looking for a working camera, you can you can do a lot better. Get better ones.
9: Wait, those were thirty five millimeter. Yeah.
0: There was a brief moment in time where there was a fad where these companies decided to take rudimentary basic plastic point and shoots and come up with these weird looking special edition cameras. And the O product was one. Does anybody remember the Minolta camera that the was similar? 20s. Product 20. Prod 20s. 20s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have
2: one of those uh, from Kurt's collection.
0: Yeah. So there, that's another one of those cameras that's, desirable on the collector's market because they're very rare and very interesting looking but if 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 you didn't know anything about like the the o product in my opinion looks like a like a high-end dental camera or something it looks like a scientific something but when you find out that it's just a cheap plastic point and shoot um the o the prod 20s looks like it might even be a classic rangefinder updated for the for the 1990s or whenever it came out but again it's just a basic point and shoot
10: I, I have to admit I I kind of lose a bit of respect for these camera companies that come out with sort of limited edition instant classics like lizard skin you know uh, covered Leicas and or the the Lenny Kravitz edition of the Leica that's pre distressed and. You know, Bronica, Bronica, uh, very eminently usable, affordable cameras. And then there's like the 25th anniversary camouflage finished edition of the ETRS. And...
1: There were some absolutely well, embarrassing Rollei 35s.
10: Yes. And uh, there's some, yeah, there's a, there's a digital, like Hasselblad came out with a, like a wood finish, a sort of a woody, the Luna or something a few years ago. Well, those are
2: Sony's, Howard. Those are, those are Sony's. I mean, it wasn't. It was just something Howard that uh, Hasselblad put their name on. Yeah.
0: When um when Porsche came out with the Cayenne, the SUV, I remember reading an article, and a lot of the Porsche uh, enthusiasts were furious. Like, how dare they release an SUV? You know, this is a disgrace to the name. And I don't remember the who the president was or some big like VP at Porsche literally came out and said, the reason we have to make this car is so that we can sell them so that we can make more 911s. And then the, the enthusiasts shut up and they were okay with it. You know? So I, I hear what you're saying, but a lot of times when these companies come up with these special edition things, it's either a prestige thing or in, in an effort to try and drum up more sales or enthusiasm for their brand to reignite what they really want to do. I think it's, it's just one of those necessary evils that is is part of consumerism today.
8: It's it's not like all of the um re-releases and stuff like that are exactly chintzy like for example the uh millennium nikons the sure. S3 re-release, re-release the SP re-release.
0: That was I agree. I mean that was truly meant to be a not a that was meant to be a recreation it like a of it. Yeah. Yeah, it was a true re-release. But
8: Nikon did give out uh did release one of the um like instant classics, and I do think that one deserves a pardon. It's the um, the, <laughs> I forget what it's called, the F five that they made in titanium, where they put the old um, the
0: the goofy the logo? logo, which look it looks great on the rangefinder, but it looks really out of place on an SLR. It Looks out of place, but it's real neat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, let's get back to Olympus here. Um, if I can, just to get back to something that the Matt was talking about. Uh, for for
1: years when I was working in the scuba industry, I was I was doing marketing. Uh, for a number of dive gear manufacturers, and I would keep a Stylus Epic in my dry bag. It would go with me on every dive trip that I had because I wanted a camera that, that, you know, wouldn't kill me if it got damaged on a dive trip, but would produce quality photos. And that Stylus Epic, I can't even tell you how many, like, ads in rotail Scuba Diver that I put together the, with images taken with that uh, Stylus Epic uh, you know, even though my primary cameras were, were Nikons at the time, uh, that, uh, the stylus Epic. But I will say that the, the, the sad demise of my Epic, I was uh, uh, down somewhere along the, 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 the east coast of Florida, and I was uh, hip deep in water taking pictures of somebody that was modeling some of our gear and didn't realize there was a, a rogue wave coming behind me. And I can guarantee you that the stylus Epic is not watertight. <laughs> um, not even water resistant i mean i uh you, you you practically see the smoke coming out of it as i got drenched with salt water
11: the um, shame anthony because it does you can actually see the sticker still on mine it says all weather with a big drop on there so it's it definitely was
0: not. That, that wave just absolutely fried my, my maybe pepper. they mean it can only handle one drop of water at a time and then that's it <laughs>
11: I was going to say, I did Google the dates and the stylus, the original stylus, the Mew one was 1991, uh, year I finished high school, very good year. And this one, the Mew 2, the, the stylus epic, came out five years later in 96. And oh, nice. a, a similar point to what I raised in the point and shoot um, show it's interesting that, like, this is a marvelous camera, a tiny, great lens, but it's interesting they never went on and, say, made like a, you know, Minolta made the TC1 and Nikon made their fancy point-and-shoot. So it's interesting they like, this is as, this is a great camera, but this is as good as it got. They never made a, a truly premium, premium. point-and-shoot where you can change the aperture and change the ISO and stuff like that.
0: That was the last thing I wanted to comment, though, on this, is it, it seems to me like Olympus made, at some point, a conscientious decision to not compete in the premium or the professional market. And you can see that by the m- early to mid 80s, the OM series was really only about a decade old, but they almost gave up on it. Like they made a very half hearted attempt to introduce autofocus. They called it what power zoom or power focus or something. Um, where you use buttons, it was horribly designed. The very interesting thing
4: about the power focus camera was that it was supposed to be autofocus. There's actually an empty spot down below the mirror chamber that was supposed to have the autofocus sensor. But because Honeywell started suing Minolta over the Maxim 7000, Olympus got cold feet, figured they were next in line to be sued. That makes sense. And so they just removed the autofocus mechanism and sold that as power focus. Right. So it was
0: aborted. Even Canon with the AL-1 was already experimenting with putting in a focus motor with focus confirmation. Then Canon came out with the T-80. Uh, Pentax had the MEF, which you could get with one or two lenses that had an external autofocus motor on it. Um, Nikon had the F3AF, which, one, which had a special prism where the autofocus motor was. So a lot of these Japanese companies were were dipping their toe in the water in the early eighties with autofocus. And Steven, your explanation makes sense. They just, they got scared and just, they just gave up. Um, You know, they obviously had the XAs, but those would only last so long because they're still manual focus. They jumped in wholeheartedly into the point and shoot market. They basically gave up on uh, interchangeable lens SLRs at the end of the OM what was it the OM 707 I think was the last model but then in 90 or 91 they they released um the IS series and I recently last year reviewed the IS2 which is it's like it, we call it a bridge camera so yeah Theo's got one it's a strange looking camera uh but it is a true SLR it's a fixed lens uh, the earlier models were a 3X zoom. I, I'm told that the IS-3 had a 4X zoom. But beyond its slightly strange appearance, that's actually a fantastic camera. Uh, now, I don't think Maitani had anything to do with that. By that point, I think he was probably retired. But once again, Olympus did a great job trying something new. Putting in a, a a ton of features into a it's I, I won't call it a compact body because it is kind of big, but for what it is, the IS series I think is is a really good camera. The lens on it, for being a '90s zoom lens, is super sharp.
2: Uh, there was a model before that too, Mike. The SP three thirty, which was a smaller okay. body but same shape, same that design one. that had I think a thirty eight to one hundred five lens.
0: And that's before the IS series. Yes. Okay, yeah, might have to look for that one.
3: There we, there you go. What, is that the? It says A. I think it says A Z.
0: Yeah, an A Z one. AZ-300.
3: Yeah, this is the three
2: hundred. Yeah, okay. uh, SP. Yeah. We call it SP three hundred here in uh, right. in this part of the world. But
3: yeah. Ah, right.
2: It's like a three X M thirty-five to one hundred five
3: zoom. So it's a, it's an interesting design. It's, it's, it's very boxy, but it's a lot more compact than the IS series. Yeah. Yeah. It was the predecessor to the IS.
0: Okay. So, but still along the same line, I think I'm trying to go with this is Olympus just was, just chose to never jump into the premium market. They chose not to jump into the, the high, uh, higher end professional market. And they seemed content with where they were at, you know, and they did, they made some really fantastic point and shoots and, and then they were trying to apply the point and shoot principle with what they had been doing to the SLRs and, and I would say they succeeded because the IS series lasted for about a decade.
2: Well, and besides that, Mike, they supported it. I mean they they had an incredible amount of uh, add-ons for the IS series. They're there a bunch were of accessories. really high quality add-on lenses. There were there were brackets. There were mounts. There were many flash units.
6: I I agree with your point. I wonder if you could argue uh, the high end thirty five millimeter professional market was Nikon and Canon, Konica, Minolta. They stumbled. Um Annika was out after about 84. Yeah, Pentax was sort of there, but sort of wasn't. Uh, just they decided we can't break into the Nikon
0: Canon. So why bother? I, I mean, I, the, I think that's it. They just they they made a conscientious decision. We are not going to compete in this market because certainly Minolta couldn't do it.
6: Kanaka Minolta couldn't do it. Uh Pentax, they, they I don't remember them. Being big players in the high-end professional, even though their stuff was excellent,
2: Yashica, no, not at the time. Olympus really didn't need to because they were they were dominant. Well, Nikon and Nikon and Olympus were dominant, but Olympus was stronger than than Nikon in all kinds of other things, like the the uh, instruments they made. All kinds of medical and technical scientific instruments. So that, that was their that was their business. I mean, just like Konica made copiers and Minolta right. made copiers and and scanners uh, scanners. I mean, that took the pressure off yeah. from needing to develop a a, a strong uh, camera profi- camera system. Well,
3: if you, if you look at the approach they took when they jumped into digital, I mean, when they brought out the OM with Panasonic, obviously the Micro Four Thirds world. It, that was squarely aimed at the consumer market. It was never aimed as a professional tool and they jumped in early and similar to what they did with the pens and the, and the trips and all that sort of stuff. They they got in there early uh, and just captured that consumer market. I mean, I, yeah, I'd be questioning if I, you know, anyone here didn't know anyone that owned Olympus you know, cameras, you know, when, you know when they were you know aiming at compacts and then you know eventually digitals with the micro four thirds well actually if you want
6: to get into that world when they came out with the omd series they were that that's when olympus did decide to jump in I guess 2013 or 12 or whatever it was uh when they when the om five was first but then the om five d yada yada but but mm. the om one I mean it's a solid I mean, they did, I think, finally jump in, try to make Micro Four Thirds a professional uh, instrument. Although, you know, that's Micro Four Thirds. That's a different, you know.
9: Oh, but They did. And and as a matter of fact, the OM-D1X, and I've used it. It's a fantastic camera. I mean, uh, that thing could follow eight moving subjects. And decide which was the principal element they had to focus on. I mean, sports-wise, there you go. Is that one? Yeah, this is the EM1X. There was an EM1 and an EM1X. That's it. I love
0: that camera for sports and for for wildlife. It's fantastic. It is hard to reconcile the sheer size of this camera that it's still a micro four-third sensor.
6: Oh, the thing about it is it's always lenses with Micro Four Thirds. You're right. The bodies might not be as small, but the lenses, you look at the equivalent of a 35
9: millimeter full frame 200. If uh, I pull out my 200-600 on my Sony full frame, compared to what you got there, I'm telling you mine is four times as heavy and is twice as long, if not a bit more. When you're, when you're, when you're up, like I did my daughter's, uh, one of her competitions, the horseback riding. And when you're there from eight 30 in the morning till five o'clock in the, in, in the evening, that camera, yep, my back was fine. If I had been with my Sony and my 200 600, oh my God. Oh yeah. It wasn't Olympus that sort of pioneered a lot of the
3: the stabilization or, or actually advanced it a lot. I think I, I, I seem to recall they have, there was a statement made that they couldn't actually advance it any further. Um, with the stabilization because it was actually the rotation of the earth or the movement of the earth <laughs> that was actually interfering with with anything uh, more
11: they could do with it
4: yeah they did say that and then they improved it on the next model so yes
11: <laughs> <laughs> so they stabilized the earth <laughs> i've been using the om1 for travel uh, i was in japan a second time this year and i i used this and like i was doing handheld shots with this four five six seconds no problem which is just crazy because on my fujifilm camera i wouldn't be able to do that um and that is an equivalent um 40 to 150 f4 so that's an 80 to 300.
0: so one thing that does bug me about the omds is they're all called omds and then they have a second model number so what's the second model number that when you have their mac
11: well this is the uh, well this i think this is the last one to be called have olympus on the camera, which is That's right, because well now they're all
0: OM. I have an EM5. So it's an OMD yep. EM5.
11: This is an OM system Olympus OM1. Now, of course, OM1, when you Google okay. it, you get all sorts of results for film Dumb. and digital okay.
9: cameras. What happened was they tried to throw themselves back into the market. After the M1X came out, they decided to go back to the uh the format of the original M1. So what they did was they recycled the model number. Yep. There was such a huge kerfuffle when that when the digital version of the OM1 came out and it kept the same format, the same uh, form as the old M1, not the M1X, but the the one before it, the, the smaller one without the without the battery grip, without the extra battery. The, the five the, the the M1 OM... Mark Three.
4: Exactly. There's the EM1 Mark Three, and then that's yeah. of the Mark Three.
9: That's right, and the, that's right. It, oh my, whoa, man, I lived through that whole thing. It was something else.
0: Well, in terms of the rebranding, they even did the digital pens too.
9: Yeah, exactly.
11: Yeah.
0: yeah. Mm. They go for yeah. a lot of
11: money these days. Like if you try and get one of those digital pens on eBay, they're, oh, yeah. they're not going cheap. We can't get them new anymore. No, but they're, they're way above market value for the, the type of camera they are. Like if you look at a similar camera from that era, they're pretty cheap. But that one, that digital pen is... A lot more than,
0: yeah. They went as far as not only to call it the pen, it's actually called the pen F. Mm-hmm. So they, they copied the name exactly from the original, but they're all micro four thirds. And I, I'll admit maybe it's snobbishness. Um, I, you know, digital, in the digital world, I was pretty much a Nikon guy. The first time I deviated from that was when I got into the mirrorless and I fell in love with the Fuji system, the X-T20. Mark, you have one. I've used the X, I can't remember, a couple different of the Fujis, and they're fantastic. But for whatever reason, the Olympus digital mirrorless is just sort of, I, I skipped past them. I never thought to look at them. And it wasn't until I handled the, the E1, the M1X, whatever it's called, the EM5, which is another OMD, and then that Olympus digital pin, and and I I was quite impressed with not only they have a great retro design, you know, they do what Fuji does. And I'd say even the Nikon Z series somewhat has, has a nice, you know, like you feel like you have a camera with a little bit of personality instead of a, a bubble, like Canon was always making. But these are fantastic cameras. And and I'm impressed. You look at, you know, we all know enough not to always focus on megapixels, that more megapixels does not mean a better image. But then you get into sensor sizes. You know that crop sensor is smaller than full frame, but then micro four thirds is even smaller than crop sensor or APS-C, I should say. Um, and they still make great images.
9: Absolutely. And it and it, it comes down to one thing, the final, the final product, right? I mean, I've taken a 24 megapixel uh, photo and I've enlarged it to 40 by 60 without a single problem quality wise, resolution wise.
0: And any nonsense you hear about oh the noise, oh the larger yeah, but, pixels.
9: Yeah. These days if you
3: shoot uh RAW yeah. and you use the new uh Lightroom noise reduction thing, the AI one, it is absolutely amazing you could get yes. away
11: with a smaller sensor on that
3: now.
9: Absolutely absolutely.
11: The strangest thing I've come across uh I, I I never ever thought I'd buy a micro four thirds camera and yet I've here, I've got one the, the weirdest thing for me is the aspect ratio. Like just getting my head around, this is not a 2-3 aspect yeah. ratio. And when you see the images and the viewfinder, I know it's silly, but I mean, you've got to learn the camera and learn how everything works. And I've, I've been impressed with it. But sometimes I'm just like, I just can't quite yeah you know, get my uh, head
3: around the... The trick is coming from the best camera in the world, the Mamiya 7, which is a 6 by 7 yes. which is, yeah, which is a like bit of occurring. a squarish format. It becomes a very easy transition.
9: <laughs> I got it in.
3: I got it in.
9: <laughs> That's why I'm so happy I got my BESA. I mean, it's still in the three. I mean, I'm still in the three, two. Sorry, I'm not, very, I'm not good at math, but six, seven isn't quite the same as four thirds, right? No, no, it's, it's not, but it's right. a square.
11: It's a squarish. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Approximate. Yeah. It's a squarish.
9: It's more of a four by five. Yeah.
0: We're about to lose Anthony, but before he goes, I want to uh, thank him. Um, I had mentioned in the last episode that I was at at odds with the contacts N1 that I had picked up, and it had the EEEE error. Um, but I liked the camera so much. I was contemplating whether I would even send it back to Japan to get my money back, which the seller agreed to, but I was thinking, well, I'll just keep it. And then just out of the blue, Anthony shoots me a message and says, Hey, look what I found on Facebook marketplace. And there's a guy who's actually familiar with the show. I was hoping he'd come on named Carson Nudson, I think uh, with a K, he had like a mint in the box contacts n one body he's in Missouri for sale. And, and he's like, I, I, I emailed him and I said, Hey, you know, can you do me a favor and check something fire the shutter five times and see if you get in there. And he goes, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've seen that before. He goes, I promise you this one does not have that. So I was like sold. So uh, he shipped it to me. I, I already got it. So um, from one episode to the very next one, I was complaining about having this contacts N1 uh, with a shutter that was flaking out. But Anthony uh, found this for me, and uh, I ended up sending the one back to the Japanese seller, uh, and he refunded my money. So I now have a perfectly working contacts N1. So thank you, Anthony. Anything
1: I can do to spread the love of Kyocera? <laughs> or contacts SLRs. All right.
0: All right. We can go back to Olympus, but I know you want to drop off. So have a good night, Anthony. Thanks. Good night, See
3: everybody. You, good night, Anthony. Good night, Anthony. Before we finish up, um, one one thing, I mean, Olympus obviously got into the compact market digital as well. And if you're looking for something that's really, you know, Digicams, we, we've got a couple of the Digicam range as well, uh, is something I came across, which is the Olympus XZ1. It's, it's this... This um, Digicam here, it's got ring controls for, you can set it for aperture or speed or whatever you like around the lens. It's got one of the best screens I've ever seen. I mean, you can't see it properly on this camera, but one of the best screens I've ever seen on a little Digicam. They're starting to climb in price, but this is a fantastic little camera with a 1.8 lens.
0: Do you know what sensor it has? Is it a one inch sensor? Do you it's know? a one 1.7th of an inch.
3: Yeah. Okay. Uh, but it it, it shoots raw and the results I've been getting out of this is just fantastic. Wow. And
4: it's a CCD sensor, so it's very popular these days. A lot of people think that's more film-like. There was the XZ2 that had the same lens and it's a backside illuminated CMOS sensor. So definitely better in low light, slightly different look. And that exact lens and sensor was also used in the Pentax MX-1 their digital camera that had a brass body that the paint would wear away on. And Casio also used the exact same lens and sensor unit in the, uh, I think it was the EX-10. Is that a Sony sensor or, or, or will they admit that? They're Sony sensors, yeah. Okay.
6: Isn't that sort of hush-hush, not supposed to know that?
4: Well, there was a time when Sony had a huge batch of defective CCD sensors in digicams in the early 2000s. And so you had recalls issued by various companies. And that's when everyone found out that when, you know, Fuji and then Nikon and Canon and Olympus and everyone started (laughs) recalling their failed Sony sensors, everyone knew that's where they were coming from.
6: You know, just one tiny little historical, uh, talking about micro four-thirds and then four-thirds, you know, s- similar and different. Four-thirds, uh, the original uh, uh, sensors in those were Kodak. Don't yeah. forget, Kodak was a player before they cashed in yeah. everything. Yeah. Uh, so, the, so some of your four-thirds Olympus cameras had a code and even Leica had a Kodak
4: sensor. That's, that's an aside, I'm sorry, but anyway. Phase One as well. Some of the exact sensor technology in the Olympus E one was used in Leica and Phase One cameras. Just they did different wafer sizes, different larger sensors. Who made the Foveon?
0: Paul, was that Sigma?
2: Uh, yeah, Sigma. Sigma. Yeah. yeah, that was the Merrill, the
6: Merrill cameras. Yeah, the no Bayer sensor or no Bayer uh,
2: filters or whatever it is. They were a three. They were three sensors, three chips, okay. three sensors.
4: Well, it was actually a single sensor. It just would record oh. light at different layers, different levels really different of the silicon.
11: Yeah. yeah. I have this uh, Digicam. It's a Comedia. I think it's like from 2001. Uh, so Theo's is a much more advanced than this one. This is 1.3 megapixels. And this come in um, <laughs> box of everything. And what, what does it look like, gentlemen? It looks like a,
0: a Mew.
11: Yeah, it Correct. looks like a mu. So uh, I haven't actually even used it yet, but I'm, I'm looking forward to taking a few shots on it. That no doubt be a bit crap, but a bit lo-fi,
0: but hey, be a bit of fun. You should try and find one of those MyTani stickers and put it on there and see if you can sell it for more. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if one megapixel is good enough for MyTani, one
6: megapixel is good enough for...
0: Well, we've hit that point. Uh, we're at the two-hour mark. I, I want to do a real quick lightning round, um, give you guys a chance to say one last thing before we go. Um, but I am going to say that I am impressed that we picked one brand. We covered the history, we covered folding cameras, we covered range finders, SLRs, and we managed to fit some, some digital stuff in there. So while I'm, I'm sure we missed something, I feel like we did a pretty good job of encapsulating one whole brand in an episode. Um, I did not know how many people would would join. But real quick, lightning round question, I'll point to everybody on the screen. If you could only have one Olympus camera, you had, you had to get rid of every Olympus camera except one, which one would you keep? Uh, or if you don't have one, which one would you want? Uh, Paul, do you have one? No. None. Okay, so <laughs> yes. I...
2: yes, I do. I have one of Kurtz.
0: What is it? It's a little uh, pen light. The pen EPL5. light. five. All right. My answer is going to be the OM one. Theo. Uh, OM one or XA three. I'm I'm hedging my bitch bits here. Patrick Casey. OMD. I'm a happy,
9: happy digital Micro Four Thirds guy.
0: Nothing wrong with that. OMD
9: EM one. OM-1 and or the XA. XA. 10 Peters. OM-1,
8: I like the motor drive. Hopefully we'll do an episode on motor drives. There you go. Robert? My
5: The OM-10, it was my mom's that she bought new in 1980, so took a lot of photos of me as a kid and went on trips with us.
0: There you go. And I can see you have the, the adjustable shutter speed attachment yep. on there. Yeah. It, it was the camera that got me into film. Yeah. Tony?
7: Uh, I'm keeping my XA-2. I've had it since 1989. I took it to Europe, all over the place, and it never failed me, so I'll keep my exit. Steven? Well, I have
4: 122 Olympus cameras, so it's hard (laughs) to choose, but I realized the one I like the best is I owned two EM5 Mark IIs of the digital, sold them both, and regretted it so much that I bought four more of them. So I've got the limited edition titanium one, the same color as the uh, OM3. I've got a silver one, and I've got two black ones, so if I own
0: four of the same model, that has to be my favorite. Yeah, very pretty. I, I have that too. I don't have the titanium, but they are nice. Matt Murray. Olympus PenFT. PenFT. Josh, you didn't get a chance to talk too much, but what's your favorite Olympus?
5: Uh, It's probably my OM4. It's like the most fun to carry around. It's got a great need. Yeah. And then I have like the 51.4, which is just so sharp.
0: The one flaw, I really like the OM4 as well too, but is yours having the LCD and the viewfinder getting really dim? No, it's pretty, no? It's pretty good yeah that's it. i've heard uh, and mine's like it's still visible but some of them they start to get real dim harder to see
5: i've heard of that i, I feel pretty lucky it's not doing that
0: <laughs> yeah mark Faulkner, pen f pen f and although anthony had to leave i can guarantee you he'd say one of his pen f's so uh he's a huge fan of those as well so um uh, that was a ton of fun uh, great brand this is our first episode of 2024 So I want to thank everybody for coming out and talking to us. We do like to periodically do shows where it's just us hosts talking about whatever comes up. uh, But we also like having you guys participate, too. Originally, we had planned to do the next show on the 22nd, but it turns out we have a scheduling conflict that day. So our next show is going to be on a special night, Thursday, January 25th. Uh, that's the 26 for Theo and those of you in Australia. But we're going to talk about Roli. Uh Recent announcements about a new Roly autofocus camera have piqued interest in the brand. But also, it's just a brand we haven't done a lot with. You know, So many Roloflex TLRs, the SLRs, point and shoots, the Roly 35, we've spent a lot of time talking about. But beyond that, we haven't really dived into much else about the company. So that should be a fun one look for the show announcement a few days before that we'll have it out like we always do. And we hope to hear from you then. Um, If you are on the fence about joining us, please come on and talk about whatever you want. Happy new year, everybody. Thank you guys for coming and good night. Good night. Good night. All Thank you. you. I enjoyed.
9: I enjoyed meeting you.
0: Take
7: care.
6: Using for Olympus, professional model Cheryl Teagues, Five amateur photographers behind the Olympus OM-10 for the first time. OM-10, the 35mm automatic that leaves nothing to chance, leaves you free to focus and shoot. And look, the actual pictures these five amateurs took. All 100 of them taken with the Olympus OM-10.
2: They're incredible.
5: Well, you can't take a bad
8: picture, Cheryl. (laughs) Neither can you with Olympus OM-10.